today, we are, uh, we're getting there, we're not quite there, but we're getting toward the end of our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're in chapter 6, second to last paragraph. So next week should be our final sermon in Galatians. Uh, But today, Paul talks about sowing and reaping. Uh, This is actually a picture called the sower. Who painted it? Van Gogh. Very good. You can tell by the texture of his brush stroke. You didn't know I was that cultured, did you? (laughs) Um, Sowing and reaping. Here we go. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. That's kind of a separate thought. And then, now's the theme of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, The first sentence is kind of a separate thought. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. What does that mean? Pay your pastor is what it means, really. Um, This is kind of hard to preach because, you know, but um, just just so you know that that's what that's teaching, here's the ESV study note. Paul instructs the church to support its teachers materially with food, money, and whatever good things are appropriate. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this um, because you take care of your your pastors well. Thank you, Valleybrook. Thank you for uh, allowing us to live in this area and have kids in a house and eat, and I eat well, okay? Um, so thank you. Now, I think it's good um, to at least touch on something because there are, there are a number of home church movements and certain denominations that believe it's wrong to have a paid pastor. They, they think that's worldly and it's wrong to have paid staff. Uh, it's more spiritual to have the lay people do everything, including share the pulpit. Okay, um, let me let me back this verse up with First Timothy, where Paul says the same thing. He says, "Pay those who spend their time studying and teaching." He says, "Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor." especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, okay? And and double honor, that's referring to pay. How do we know the next verse? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. 
Uh, one of the laws of Israel was when an ox was, was uh, doing his work in the field, you were to take his muzzle off so he could eat the grain as he's going along. Right? Some oxes eat more than others. Right? Um, but pay those who spend their time laboring in the word. And just in case you go, that's all code. I don't understand what it's saying. He says this, the laborer deserves his wages. All right? Pay the guy. You go, well, what do you pay a pastor? Well, you know, in, in essence, you have to say, um, what's it cost to live with a family in uh, a certain region? When, when we lived in Wisconsin, we bought a home for $59,000. Right? And when we were moving down here, we thought, wow, we might have to go up a little bit to get a house. I mean, we might have to get up there around 60000 So we went to the real estate guy, and we said, you know, we're, we're looking for maybe, maybe $100,000 for a house. He laughed at us. Because you can't even get a garage for that. Okay? So, you know, basically what you have to do is say, what's it cost? You don't want to make him the richest guy in the world. I just heard of one, one uh, pastor. They're going to buy a $60 million jet so he can jet around the world and preach the gospel. I mean, there, there is something obnoxious about that. Okay? Uh, on the other hand, you don't, uh, you don't want him to starve or he's going to have to go get another job, and then he won't be able to spend his time uh, preaching the word. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people say, well, let's look at the equivalent. What would you pay a, te- uh, a teacher or a government worker with the same amount of education and the same uh, years of experience? So there's different formulas people use, but, you, you know, you don't want to make him rich, you don't want to make him poor, but what would be great is if a church could have a guy or several guys, whose full-time work it is to study the Word and feed you. Now, second thought is this. Um, Consider worthy of double honor, especially those who labor labor in preaching and teaching. That tells you something about a pastor's job description. You know, if you want to know uh, in a church of, uh, of 200, how many job descriptions does the pastor have? 200. Because everybody has a different idea of what he should be doing. But here's what Scripture says the pastor should be doing. He should be laboring in preaching and teaching. In fact, there's a, a, a reading that I came across. Uh, this was actually in MacArthur's book on preaching. Uh, years ago, and let me just read this. It says, fling him into the office, tear off the sign from the door that says uh, office and nail up the sign that says study. Take him off the mailing list, lock him up with his books, computer, and Bible, slam him down on his knees before texts, broken hearts, and the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our shallow community who knows about God Engage him to wrestle with God all night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into a blessing. Shut his mouth forever from spouting remarks and stop his tongue from forever uh, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say 
before he breaks the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for the things of God and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his success sheets. Delete his social media accounts. Give him a Bible. Tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, shame him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finance, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated efforts to play psychiatrist. Form a choir, raise a chant, and haunt him day and night saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. When at last he dares to stay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not dismiss him, tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's drives and bless the assorted baked potatoes and green beets ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he has read and reread and written and rewritten until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. That's his job. Right? Some people, they say, oh, his job is to be the business manager. His job is to pet every sheep. Every no, The job is to prepare a meal so when you come, you are not fed fast food. You know, so many people, they, they go to church in, in their entire life, and their depth is about that deep because they've been fed fast food. You should want a guy who's, who's not impressing you with deep, theological words all the time, but who takes the word and goes deep and feeds your soul. So that's the goal here. Paul says, if you have a guy like that or several people, pay him so he doesn't have to, to, to get several other jobs and long after a meal. Right? Thank you for letting me do that. Right? Thank you also for understanding the primary uh, job is to study and to teach and to feed the sheep. All right? So, um, oh, one, one more quick thing. I once was doing a Bible study. This was, uh, I don't even know where it was, but I was teaching a Bible study. We were studying Galatians, and a guy showed up um, with a cherry pie. And I go, what's that for? He says, well, in, in Galatians it says, um, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches and Pie's a good thing, so here. <laughs> so <laughs> I took it. <laughs> like, all right. Um, now, wh- while the primary thing it's talking about is financial, um, I think you could also say good things might include how you're growing. You know, it, it might occasionally be a good thing to type an email and say, you know, uh, to your to your Bible study leader, your small group leader, to a pastor, to somebody. Yeah. I really appreciate what you taught. It has helped me grow in this area. Okay? Because it's encouraging. You know, imagine being a cook. Cooking meal after meal after meal after meal and never getting a, hey, thanks for the green bean almond dean. Okay, I know, dear, you want to hear that more often, don't you? Okay, um, 
But that might be an idea, too, of what it means to share uh, all good things with those who teach. Okay, now, that's really not the main topic, though, of this, uh, this section. The main topic is the principle of sowing, planting, okay, and reaping. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break the rest of this into three points that all begin with the same letter. Yeah, believe it or not. (laughs) So here we go. Point one, don't be deceived. Point two, don't give up. Point three, do good. Don't be deceived, don't give up, do good. So let's take a look, first of all, at do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Okay, stop right there. Little principle. What you plant is what you get. If you plant pumpkin seeds, you're not going to get broccoli. If you plant sunflowers, you're not going to get tomatoes. The seed you sow is what you will Reap. Well, then he applies this spiritually. For the one who sows to his own flesh, okay, the one who sows the seed of sin, will from the flesh reap corruption or destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit, the one who, who uh, uh, does what pleases God, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You will reap what you sow. Okay? Now, those of you who have been studying Galatians, at this point, should be troubled. Because the gospel is, you don't reap what you sow. You're saved By what Christ did, not by what you do. But here, it seems to be teaching that there is a cause and effect relationship between your life and what you do, your good works, and salvation. Yet, isn't the whole point of Galatians that you could never earn your way to heaven? The law condemns you. If you try to get in by law-keeping and good works, you will be condemned because the law requires perfection. Therefore, the good news is Jesus died on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died a perfect death in your place. And you trust in him, and you are saved by faith alone, not by works. So now, after laboring for four and a half chapters uh, that you're not saved by works, it ends with you reap what you sow. How do you reconcile the first four and a half chapters of Galatians with the last chapter and a half? All right. See, this is how you should be thinking as, you, as you're, you're studying a book of the Bible. You should say, well, that doesn't seem to fit with that. How do you fit this together? How, how does reaping and sowing fit together with salvation by faith alone? Now, some have tried to relieve the tension in two ways. One way they, they try to do it is to say, well, this isn't talking about eternity. This is just talking about here on earth. 
when you live a corrupt, sinful life, there will be consequences. And if you live a clean life, a godly life, uh, you'll, you'll be fine. The IRS will leave you alone. The police will leave you alone. Uh, happy will be your life. Right? Um, well, the problem with that is verse 8. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This isn't talking about temporal life. It's talking about eternal life. So uh, while the principle of sowing and reaping may be true most of the time here on earth, I think this is talking about eternity. Another way people try to resolve the tension is they say, well, this isn't talking about salvation and going to heaven. It's talking about heavenly rewards. Okay? Um, In fact, the ESV Study Bible takes that approach. I think they're wrong. Here's what the ESV Study Bible says. Paul's reference to reaping is a reference to the blessings of eternal life. Not just that you're saved, but you are rewarded for what you did down here. And I do believe that we do get rewards in heaven. Uh, We are saved by faith alone, but we are rewarded for how we live down here. But... I don't think that that's what this is talking about because it says, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap not eternal rewards, but eternal life itself. So I think this is saying sowing and reaping leads to eternal life. How do you reconcile that with the fact that the gospel says you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith Alone. Well, let me, let me answer this by making a distinction between two kinds of, of sowing and reaping. There's cause and effect sowing and reaping. And then there's what I'm going to just simply call evidential sowing and reaping. Okay? You go, what, what's the difference? Have I ever mentioned the parable of the talents before? Okay. Jesus tells a parable. He says there was a, uh, a businessman. And he calls in three of his servants, his employees. And to one he gives five talents. To another he gives two. To another he gives one. A talent is a chunk of money. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. Each according to their ability. Okay. Um, the guy with five, he... In essence, you could say he sows and he reaps five more. He has ten. Number two, he sows two and he reaps two more. He has four. Last guy doesn't even sow. Well, he buries it, but he doesn't really sow. He doesn't really do anything, and he's called a wicked, lazy servant. Now, let's zero in on the, 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 the two-talent guy. Right? Um, His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. This is important. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, you could say that his sowing of two talents reaped two more talents. 
That's cause and effect reaping. You could also say his sowing and his reaping reaped for him eternal life. Enter into the joy of your master. One is a direct one-to-one cause and effect, sowing and reaping. The other is an evidence of something kind of reaping. His sowing and reaping for his master, the fact that he didn't just bury it, but that he actually put some effort into this, his sowing and reaping for his master was evidence of his faithfulness to his master. Well done, good and faithful servant. And his faithfulness to his master is evidence of his faith in his master, that he trusted his master. He was saved by faith alone as evidenced by his sowing and reaping. Yes, there's some cause and effect, sowing and reaping, the two and the four, but then there's evidential sowing and reaping. The fact that he even did this shows that he was faithful to his master. And faithfulness to his master shows he had faith in his master and he entered into the joy of his master by faith alone as evidenced by his sowing in reaping. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. It is essential to maintain that distinction. You cloud that and we are back into Roman Catholicism where your works are part of your justification. That is not the gospel. Sorry if that offends you. That is not the gospel. You must maintain a firm wall between works and faith. That's what Galatians is all about. So we must maintain that. But we also need to teach that true faith will evidence itself by works. Or it's not true faith. Faithfulness results in works. Works are the evidence, not the cause of salvation. You know, let me show you a couple other verses where it has to be interpreted this way. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, some of you this morning, you sang along. And maybe, I don't know what the lyrics were to all the songs, but I'm sure the word Lord was in there. And you sang Lord. And he's not your Lord. You haven't bowed the knee to him. He's no more your Lord than the Queen of England. Right? So many will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do we know who's going to heaven? But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only those whose lives obey him. Right? Isn't the very definition of Lord that he is your master? And if you don't obey him, he's not your Lord. So you can sing Lord, Lord all you want, but if he's not your master, you're deceiving yourself. But is this first teaching that you're saved by works? No, can't be. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? 
You're saved by what he did for you on the cross in his life, and you're saved by faith alone. But guess what? If you're truly saved, you will do the will of your Father who is in heaven as evidence. Another verse. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you're not going to heaven. I'm saved by holiness. No, you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And without holiness, you're not going to heaven. As evidence of your salvation. Not the cause. The evidence of your salvation. So, um, all that to say don't be deceived. Don't, Don't divorce faith from works, sowing from reaping, but don't mix them up either. Okay? Now, let's get into point two. Don't give up. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. Do you ever get tired of giving and serving and reading your Bible and being nice to people who aren't nice to you and giving and serving and going to small group and making another casserole and coming to church and giving and serving and then you do it again next week and you give and you serve and it just gets weary. If you say no, you're a liar. Apostles don't give up, but he doesn't just command you. He gives you incentive. What's his incentive? Look to the harvest. You're going to reap in due season. Now, some take this to mean, well, just keep, keep at it. And in this lifetime, God owes you a harvest. So just keep at it, and there will be a harvest uh, sometime in this lifetime. And I don't think he's talking about a harvest during this lifetime. In fact, there are many servants of God who have sown their entire lives and have virtually nothing to show for it. Um, I think of Isaiah, who's in the temple in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. and He falls on his face. Woe is me, I am undone. And uh, Christ, who is the one he sees in the temple, uh, restores him. And then he says, I have a mission. Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. Okay. What's my job? What's my job description? Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Your job, Isaiah? is to preach Israel down to four people. They're not going to listen. And the more you preach, the harder their hearts will become. And I will bring in Babylon to destroy them. There's your job. And then Isaiah says, "Uh, how long? (laughs) How long am I supposed to do this? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and the houses without people and the land is a desolate 
waste. Your job description is to so, 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 and there will be no earthly reaping. Let me ask you this. Are you committed to sowing the gospel or going to a church that sows the gospel regardless of whether it ever becomes a big thing or not? Some people are like, no, i got to be at the happening place. Is it happening, though? Are the numbers happening because of the gospel saving souls? Or is it happening just because it's happening? Because it's a hipster church. Some people are so shallow that, that there's, a, there's a worldly energy created with numbers and programs and that, you know, and they're deceived into thinking that that's really what God wants. Isaiah, zero fruit. There was a preacher named Jesus who when he ascended into heaven left behind a church of how many? 120. From a worldly perspective, that's a failure. Right? So all that to say, I don't think that the Reaping, in this passage, is referring to temporal, worldly, this world, reaping. It's got to be referring to heaven. Okay? Look to the reaping you will get in heaven so you don't grow weary. Now, some people say, now careful, pastor. You don't want people to be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. I've never met that guy. I have never met the guy whose mind is so into the things of God and heaven that he doesn't do any good. Um, Most of us are so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Dwell upon heaven. Dwell upon eternity. How about this? You ever realize how amazingly productive you are the week before vacation? I mean, you can get a lot done in that week. Why? Because in a week you're going to be laying on a beach somewhere. In eternity, no more death, no more sickness, no more pain. You're in the presence of Jesus. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let that motivate you to not give up. All right? Now, one last point. Do good. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Now, we're to do good to, to two groups of people. Group one, everyone. Right? Group two, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, believers. Everyone and believers. Now, when we talk about works, you know, when the Bible says you're not saved by works, we're not saved by them, but we are saved to do them. Right? But never is it talking about doing 
the works of sacraments to get God's grace, going to confession, doing penance, praying some beads to get God's grace. It's talking about caring for people. So the whole debate, Catholic-Protestant debate over are you saved by faith or works, even, and this is not true, even if you were saved by works, you're not. The works are not sacramental works. The works are loving people works. In fact, James says this, What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So here is faith versus works. Can that faith save him? Well, what, what are the works we're talking about? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? The works are caring for people works. So much time and money and energy has been wasted trying to earn the grace of God that he wants to give freely through religious works, okay? Now, uh, so when we talk about works, what are we talking about? Doing good to people. Now, first of all, you're to do it to everybody. That would be unbelievers. The parable of the Good Samaritan makes it clear that when somebody's in your path who's hurting, whether they're saved or unsaved, you should help that person. We are to be concerned with the physical needs of the people in the Elburn area who need to use the food pantry, right? We are to help. We are to support an orphanage in Tanzania that feeds and educates and clothes orphans and widows, okay? We are to do good to all people, but let me remind us that the ultimate good we are after better be saving their souls. You know, Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the world and lose your soul? What good is it if you feed a person, clothe a person, are nice to a person, and they think you're a wonderful person, and they die and go to hell and burn there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What good is that? So, here's a question. You're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith must result in doing good to people, or you're not saved. How are you doing at the good work of getting people saved? Sharing the gospel. Introducing Christ in your conversations. Inviting them to a gospel-preaching church. How are you doing at that good work? That's the ultimate good. You don't want to go to hell. Christ died for you. How are you saved? By placing your faith in him as Savior and Lord. If he is Lord, you will obey him. If you obey him, there will be good works. What are good works? Loving people. How do you love people? If they're going to hell, you save them from hell. There you go. Couldn't be clearer. Now, last thing. What about believers? He says... Especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, wouldn't you think it'd be the other way around? Wouldn't you think he would say, uh, be good to everyone, especially those who don't know the Lord? Because you want to win them over. 
he puts the especially on the believers. Why? Because Jesus says the world will know that I am the Christ and you are my disciples if you love one another. There is a greater witness when we show our love for one another than if we spread it out so thin that, that nobody, you, know, you, don't, you don't see concentrated love anywhere. Okay? Don't forget the world. But sometimes, okay, so, you know the phrase, you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You can be so worldly minded, save the world minded, that you're no good in the church. So, let me, um, let me raise a parable. Have I ever mentioned the parable of the sheep and the goats? Okay. Bible says in Matthew 25, when Jesus returns, the entire world will be lined up in front of him and you will be separated into one of two categories. Sheep, goats. Saved and unsaved. Okay. There's not a hybrid thing, a goat dog or a no, just two. You either go to heaven or to hell. There's no purgatory. There's just heaven or hell. I'm working a lot of Catholicism in today. I didn't mean it, but it just comes out. It pours out. Truth pours out. Okay. Um, sheep and goats. Now, here's what Jesus says to the sheep, the saved. Then the king will say to those on his right, sorry, over here. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Three misunderstandings that a lot of people have about this parable. Misunderstanding one, this is not, okay, the, mis- the misunderstanding is that these people are saved by their works, okay? No, this, this parable is teaching what we just learned about sowing and reaping. It is not talking about salvation by works, it's talking about salvation by faith in Christ as evidenced by works. What kind of works? Works of love. It is not about cause and effect, sowing and reaping. It's about evidential sowing and reaping. So that's misconception one. Misconception number two. You could read this and come to the conclusion that there are going to be some people saved who don't even know they're saved and they don't even know Jesus. They seem to be surprised. Right? Doesn't this parable teach that those who are good to others, who visit others in prison who feed the poor, they're really doing it to Christ. They may not even know about Christ, but their goodness to Christ shows 
uh, that somehow, uh, somehow they're saved and they're surprised on Judgment Day. No, 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 no. This is not teaching that good-hearted people will get into heaven regardless of whether they believed in Christ or not. Their surprise on Judgment Day is not that they're saved. Their surprise on Judgment Day is that Jesus says the good they did to others was really being done to him. When did we feed you and clothe you and visit you? I remember visiting people in prison and I remember feeding people, but I don't think it was you. And Jesus says, yeah, when when you did it to them, you did it to me. That's the surprise. Not that they were thinking they were going to hell, but they were good-hearted and they get in by their good works. So that's misconception number two. Misconception number three, and this is prevalent. Misconception number three, the phrase, the least of these brothers of mine, refers to everybody who's hurting. The least of these brothers of mine, if you're, if, you know, feeding anybody, visiting anybody in prison, that's the brothers of Jesus. No. Who are these brothers of mine? Down and out Christians. Brothers must mean a believer in Christ, not just any hurting person. You say, can you back that up? MacArthur, this refers in particular to other disciples, ESV. The least of these refers to those who are most needy among Jesus' brothers, a reference most likely to Jesus' disciples and by extension all believers. Does that mean we should neglect prison ministry Food pantry, no, you're to be good to everybody. But this parable is about on Judgment Day us showing evidence of our salvation by our love for one another, especially the down and outers, especially the hurting, especially the least of these brothers of mine. So, um, my first question dealing with being good to unbelievers is, how you doing with sharing the gospel? Loving the unbeliever by sharing the gospel, isn't that the ultimate good question here? Has the body of Christ become my real family so I'm willing to love and serve and sacrifice for them? I think it'd be appropriate as we close to pray for the weary. All right? I know some of you, you're giving, you're giving, you're giving, and it can be a wearying thing. And I hope you're encouraged this morning to look at the harvest that you're promised, to keep going and to keep serving. All right? Let's pray. Lord, you promise us abundant riches, eternal glory, lavish wealth. 
in heaven. Most importantly, you promise us that we will be in your presence. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, some who are very weary of giving and serving and being persecuted. Some are so tired they can't take another step. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage, remind us of that eternal harvest, that eternal reaping that will come in due season and enable us to just keep faithfully sowing and serving you, knowing, Lord, that your death on the cross purchased that eternal reward. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.